Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. We're here every Saturday at 12 noon, and we hope that you enjoyed our very special program last week. And uh, Dale was in charge of that, and she did a great, great job, didn't she? We're so proud of her. But we're back with our usual um, material today. We've got Tudge's Fudge School Results and Funding. And um, we're also going to talk about the private schools and their staff and how they're axing the staff discounts, which come in the form of fees for their children. And then we're going to hear about how the teachers in public schools in particular are reacting after a year of COVID. They're exhausted and like the nurses, they think that they should get hefty pay rises and smaller class sizes and the dogs agree with them. Then we're going to go over to America because there's a very interesting article on Diane Ravitch's website. The former privatiser, Charles Siler, is changing sides and becoming a person who is prepared to say public schools are best and very important. So we'll be talking about that. Now, the My School website is down this week, so we haven't got our usual information that we can give you about a great state school, but we do know one because in the history wars, there is a little primary school up in the North Melbourne that uh, refused to whitewash Australian history quite a time ago. And they're doing some very interesting things too. So we'll talk about that if we get time. So let's, let's get on with the show, shall we? And get through all of this material. First of all, we've got Maddie and Sorrel who are going to read about Pudges, Budges, Schools, Results and Funding. I am going to hand it over to Sorrel who's going to read us a very interesting article from uh, Trevor Kobold. Over to you, Sorrel. Thank you very much, Madeline and Jean. So the Minister for Education, Alan Tudge, resorted to fudging figures to denigrate Australia's school performance At the Age Education Summit last week, he claimed the UK as the new benchmark for education performance, but ignored serious flaws in the reporting of its results. He also fudged data on school funding and student results in Australia. Tudge told the summit that the UK has dramatically improved its education results in the OECD's program for international student assessment over the last 10 years despite cutting school funding. However, the UK PISA in 2018 results are significantly overstated because of several flaws, most notably very low school participation and high student exclusion from the tests. The flaws are exposed by Professor John Jerram of the University College of London in a paper to be published in the academic journal Review of Education. His analysis comprehensively refutes Tudge's claim. He says, there is clear evidence of an upward bias in the PISA 2018 data for England and Wales, with lower achievers systematically excluded from the sample. Jerem estimates that the combination of student exclusions, school non-response, student non-response and technical details about eligibility criteria meant that about 40% of the target UK student population did not participate in PISA 2018, 
This was the fourth lowest participation rate of the 79 countries participating. Only Panama, USA and Brazil had lower rates. He shows that the PSIA 2018 data for England, which accounts for 84% of the UK sample, clearly underrepresents lower achieving students and overrepresents higher achieving students. For example, 21% of the PISA sample were low achievers compared to the 29% for the total population of the age group. Another issue analysed by Jerem is the school response rate. The OECD requires that 85% of sampled schools agree to take part in the study. However, both England and Northern Ireland failed to meet this standard, with only 72% and 66% respectively participating. The overall rate for the UK was 73%. While there is provision to include replacement schools, the PISA technical criteria require a very high participation rate from such schools, which was not met by the UK. Even the UK Department of Education admits that the UK did not fully meet the PISA 2018 participation requirement because of the high school non-response. However, the OECD waived this through and agreed that the UK data should be included as fully comparable to other countries. Jerem says the OECD has a very weak adjudication process to decide whether to include a country's data in the PISA results. Jerem has also shown that the UK had a high rate of student exclusion from the tests. Students can be excluded from tests in various ways. Schools may decide not to test some students included in the sample. Others may be declared ineligible because they moved schools between the time the sample was designed and the time that the test was implemented. Parents may not consent for students to participate, and some students in the sample may have been absent on test day. The OECD technical standards state that within school exclusions should total less than 2.5% of the target population, and that the combination of school level and within school exclusions should not exceed 5% of the target population. The UK failed to meet these standards. The within school exclusion rate was 3.3% and the total exclusion rate was 5.5%. Jerem notes that a strict application of PISA's data quality criteria would have led the UK to be removed from the study as it was from the PISA 2003 for similar breaches. These exclusion rates are much higher than for many other countries participating in PISA 2018. The average within school rate was 1.4% and the total exclusion rate was 3%. The total exclusion rates in Japan and South Korea was 0.1%. Such differences are likely to bias cross-country comparisons of other PISA performance. The overall high non-participation in the UK has clear potential to bias its PISA results. It creates large uncertainty about the results. This is likely to affect the reliability of comparisons to other countries and how results have changed over time. So you're telling our listeners that Mr Tudge used OECD figures, which were highly questionable even on OECD um, criteria. 
And he was quite happy to do this, even though there was a lot of evidence available to him from academics and others that the figures themselves were highly, highly questionable and shouldn't be taken seriously. Jerome estimates that the average PISA scores in England and Wales were inflated by the high non-participation rate in PISA 2018. The average PISA mathematics score for England was 504 points, significantly above the average across OECD countries. He estimates that had a truly representative sample of the population taken the tests, England's score would have been about 494. This is roughly the same as the OECD average and Australia's score. And Australia's score was right down, as was our funding of public schools. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, so was England's down. So, yes, that's all very interesting. His his argument is really starting to look very fudged. Jerome concludes that the OECD adjudication process for deciding whether a county's results should be accepted in a PISA cycle should be more transparent. The OECD needs to reconsider its technical standards, the strictness of which these are applied, and its data adjudication processes. The processes currently in place flatter to deceive and are nowhere near robust enough to support the OECD's claims that PISA provides truly representative and cross-nationally comparable data. His analysis of the dodgy PISA results in the UK raises the broader issue of the validity of international comparisons when there are so many loopholes for countries to rig their results. He states, there remain many ways for countries to not test pupils who are technically part of the target population, with lower achievers disproportionately likely to be removed from the sample. Apart from using the dodgy UK PISA results, Tudge also fudged school funding data in Australia in claiming its school funding per student, adjusted for inflation, increased by 60% since 2000. This is far from the truth. After adjusting for flaws in data from the report on government services, we estimate the actual increase for all schools from 2001 to 2002 to 2018 and 19 was only 19%. That is an average increase of just over 1% per year. The increase for private schools was over double that for public schools. Government funding per student in private schools increased by 34% compared to only 15% for public schools. If school funding is failing to deliver better results, as Tudge claims, this is mainly because money is being wasted on more privileged private schools instead of helping schools to overcome disadvantage in education also fudged Australia's school results by highlighting the decline in PISA results for 15-year-old students and ignoring improving results in Year 12. The decline in PISA results is questionable because student motivation and effort is likely to be a factor in the decline. In contrast to Year 12 assessment, the PISA tests have no consequences for students as they don't even get their results. The OECD says that 73% of Australian students participating in PISA 2018 did not fully try in the tests. While there is no direct evidence of an increasing proportion of students not fully trying in the PISA tests over time, there is indirect evidence. 
This data shows that student dissatisfaction at school amongst 15-year-olds in Australia increased fourfold from 8% to 32% between PISA 2003 and 2018. This large increase in student dissatisfaction may have led to lower motivation and effort in PISA over time. The OECD says that relationship between a feeling of belonging at a school and performance in PISA is strong for students with the least sense of belonging. Students who feel they do not belong at a school has, have significantly lower levels of achievement in PISA than those who feel they do belong. And that's usually the disadvantage, children, isn't it? It absolutely when is. They, when their parents can't pay for all the foreign dolls and extras. Tudge's claim of declining school results is contradicted by other more significant data. The percentage of the estimated year 12 population that completed year 12 increased from 68% in 2001 to 79% in 2018, although there is an unexplained drop-off in 2019. The proportion of 20 to 24-year-olds who attained a year 12 certificate or equivalent increased from 79% in 2001 to 89% in 2019. Well, that's a very interesting figure, isn't it? The they are. That means that the retention rate of Australian students is going up, which means that, um, yes, they don't, there's less jobs for them, but they are staying on at school and they're interested enough to stay on at school, which means that there's some very good teaching going on. I think Mr Tudge should uh, take note of that. Uh, the majority of the funding, of course, has gone to the private schools, but I'd say the majority of those children who are staying on are in the public schools. So we've got some pretty good public school teachers uh, out there. I would tend to agree with that, Jane. I really would. Um, the OECD data also shows that Australia had one of the larger increases in the OECD in the proportion of 25 to 34-year-olds who attained at least an upper secondary education. So it increased by 19 percentage points from 71% in 2001 to 90% in 2019. These are indicators of an improving education system, not a deteriorating one. They are clearly inconvenient for Tudge because he ignores them and relies solely on questionable figures that misrepresent Australia's education performance. Tudge's budgets are designed to deny public schools the funding increases needed to ensure all students received an adequate education and to improve equity in education. Instead, the Morrison government has provided billions of dollars in special deals for private schools and conspired with state governments through bilateral funding agreements to continue to underfund public schools. No more fudges, Mr Tudge. Your fundamental task as the Commonwealth Minister for Education is to better support public schools and disadvantaged students to deliver improvements and equity in education. Yes, uh, so that's a very interesting article by Trevor Cobalt from Zadar Schools. And thank you, uh, Sol and Maddie, and we'll have a bit of a break. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! 
Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Well, welcome back to the Dogs Program. Now we've got a very interesting article that Oliver's going to read to us. We wouldn't have been able to afford it. Private schools axe the staff discounts. Teachers in private schools are like servants. They're not public servants, they're private servants but they get uh, little extras. The teachers, some of whom are not are on high salaries and some of whom are not on high salaries, get perks, uh, but they're being cut back. The fringe benefits are being cut, which tells you something about the business plans of the private sector in times of play. Over to you, Ollie. Madeline Heffernan writes, Newly hired teachers and support staff at Australian, sorry, at Victorian private schools are being denied generous discounts on their children's tuition fees as schools cut back on the employee perk boost to boost their bottom line. Some schools now offer no discounts for new staff while maintaining more generous reductions for longer serving employees, enterprise agreements show. Ex-principal Phil DeYoung and his wife decided to send their three children to Wesley College, thanks to a staff discount. I would not have been able to afford it had I not been teaching at Wesley, he said. Mr. DeYoung, a former principal of Trinity Grammar and Kerry Grammar, said high-fee Victorian private schools had a long history of substantial staff fee discounts, but with some offering free tuition until recent decades. The other reason is it's always a sign of confidence in the school when teachers have their kids at that school. But as schools have become more commercially focused, people have, have looked at the discounts and thought, Look, I think that's too generous, and they've been whistled back. One teacher at a Melbourne private school, which has abolished its discount, said this had not only made the school less affordable for teachers and lower-paid support staff, but less appealing to prospective employees. The teacher, who did not want to be identified due to fear they would be punished by their employer, said the school had promised more scholarships with the money saved and criticised the discount as irrelevant to many staff. Schools also say hefty discounts do not reflect the interests of families paying full fees. But the teacher said the abolition seems to be a part of an increasing corporatized culture, a generalized diminution of staff pay in conditions which stands in stark contrast to incre- increasingly extravagant building programs. Boys School Scotch College and Girls School PLC have reciprocal discounts. Mr. DeYoung said a 50% tuition fee discount offered by schools, including Westbourne Grammar, Goulburn Valley Grammar, and Mentone Girls Grammar, was now considered generous. Mr. DeYoung said boys' schools and coeducational schools that started life as boys' schools have tended to provide more generous staff fee discounts than girls' schools. I understand there's a differential historically between all boys' and all girls' schools, he said. Predominantly boys' schools had blokes as teachers, and they were the breadwinners and traditionally girls' schools had women working in them, so there could be something there, but that would be speculation. Catholic boys' school Xavier College once educated the students of staff members for free, but now provides no discount. Girls' schools Genazano and MLC are also to believe are also believed to provide no discount. Catholic boys' schools, St. Kevin's College, which has offered discounts of 75% to staff, said its rates may vary greatly, as is the case at many schools. Boys' schools, Trinity Grammar, and Royton Girls' School have reciprocal discounts, as do Boys' School, Scotch College, and Girls' School, PLC. 
More than 54,000 people work in Victorian non-government schools, the latest official figures show. The most experienced classroom teachers in Victoria are paid at least $118,000. I think you've got to get somewhere near a principal in public school to get anything like that. Mr DeYoung said, while the discounts can cost large schools millions, teachers in both the private and government sectors are paid well as graduates, but 10 years after, their relativity to other professions diminishes drastically. Most schools typically pay the FBT, fringe benefits tax, payable on the discount, so it represents an increase in real income, he said. The Independent Education Union said, unfortunately, we are running up against increasing resistance to maintaining staff fee discounts. Melbourne Archdiocese Catholic Schools Executive Director Jim Miles said decisions on school fees were a matter for individual Catholic schools. Independent Schools Victoria declined to comment. Uh, it shows actually um, how some private schools regard uh, their teachers uh, and how they're starting to, when they cut back, if they have to cut back something, it's the teachers and their perks go first. But we'll have a bit of a break and then we'll come back with some uh, interesting material about how exhausted our teachers are in the public schools and it's about time that they got, just got the pay that they're worth. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. You're still listening to the Dogs Program, I hope. And now we're going to talk about how our teachers in public schools are exhausted and uh, want to be recognised for what they're worth. So I'll pass you over to Ollie and Maddie and young Sol. Thank you, Jean. Adam Carey writes, state school teachers and principals are pushing for a 21% pay rise over three years, plus 16.5% superannuation, as well as significant cuts to face-to-face teaching hours and smaller class sizes. The Australian Education Union's workplace agreement with the Andrews government nominally expired on Friday, and the union said that the state's underfunded school system is driving thousands of overworked teachers out of the profession. Victorian state school teachers work an average of 15 hours of unpaid overtime every week, while many principals work a 60-hour week, the union said. The claims are based on a survey earlier this year of more than 10,800 government school staff. Branch President Meredith Peace said the unpaid overtime was directly linked to the fact that Victorian government schools received the least funding per student in the country. Victorian schools continue to be the lowest funded in our nation, $1,384 per student behind the national average, Ms Peace said. There is a direct connection between that funding gap and the excessive workloads that we see across our public schools in Victoria. Excessive workload is driving four in every 10 Australian state school teachers to consider quitting the profession, the union survey found. 46% of teachers said they had poor work-life balance due to working long hours. The union would put teacher workload at the heart of its campaign for higher pay, 
Miss Peace said. Despite their professionalism, exhausted teachers with excessive workloads who are teaching large classes can't deliver the quality teaching and support our children need and deserve, she said. Australian Education Union Victorian President Meredith Peace is pushing for a 21% pay rise for government teachers over three years. The union's log of claims includes a pay rise of 7% a year between 2021 and 2024, double the 3.5% wage rise train and tram drivers received last year, and more than double the 3% pay rise public sector nurses and midwives received. Under the expiring agreement, teachers begin on an annual salary of $72,000, increasing up to $108,000 for the most senior teachers $118,000 for leading teachers and learning specialists. Over to you, Sorrel. Thanks, Ollie. Principals earn between $147,000 and $224,000. The union has also called on the Andrews government to cut face-to-face teaching hours to 18 per week, down from the current 22 and a half hours in primary school and 20 hours in secondary school. It has also called for a reduction in teaching hours for teachers in their first three years, arguing that those staff need more time to further develop the skills needed to teach well. First-year teachers would take classes for a maximum of 14 hours a week, down from 18 now, rising to 15 hours in year two and 16 hours in year three. Class sizes would shrink to a maximum of 20 students at all year levels under the union's log of claims. The current maximum is 26 at primary level and 25 in secondary schools. The Grattan Institute School Education Program Director, Jordana Hunter, said that the job of being a teacher has grown in complexity. Expectations that all students can learn have increased over time where in the past it might have been a more acceptable view that some students are not cut out for book learning or not good at maths, says Miss Hunter. These days, we understand that with effective and targeted intervention, we can help all students reach their potential, but that requires a different skill set. So the job for teachers is becoming more challenging. Splensley Street Primary School Principal Beck Spink said the survey's 60-hour average workload for principals was conservative. She said teachers at her school consistently worked unpaid overtime just to do the bare minimum of what's required. It is a myth that teachers work nine to three, and it frustrates me to no end when I hear all the teacher bashing that happens in broader society, she says. Although the current agreement has nominally expired, it will continue until a new deal is struck. An Andrews government spokesperson said the government would not provide comment while negotiations are underway. A new independent inquiry into valuing the teaching profession should be a big wake-up call to state governments across Australia. Teaching is a much harder job than many in government appreciate. It is extremely hard to teach well with the support and time currently available. Teachers feel overworked, underpaid, and undervalued. Over the past decade, big changes to the curriculum and expectations to personalize teaching have made teachers' jobs much more complex. At the same time, governments have developed more responsibilities to schools, stripping out centrally organized support services in key areas such as the curriculum, student well-being, and teaching students with a disability. The upshot is that our teachers feel overworked, 
undervalued, and less prepared to teach effectively. The inquiry report prepared for the New South Wales Teachers Federation by former WA Labor Premier Jeff Gallup and released last Saturday brightly calls for changes to the staffing and resourcing of schools to be better recognized teachers' expertise. Two key reforms stand out, better teacher career paths and higher teacher salaries. Creating a new expert teacher career path should be a top priority. As the Grattan Institute's 2020 report top teachers showed a coherent career structure designed to build, recognize, and deploy teaching expertise should be at the heart of any reform effort to better value the teaching profession. Over to you now, Madeline. I'd like to just say something there. Um, Absolutely. There's been a lot of changes um, with decentralization and putting so much more responsibility down to the school level. We used to have a centralized system where the central administration was responsible for giving tremendous support to the teachers. And there was a career structure that went up through an inspectorate into the central office itself so that the director of education usually had had some kind of experience in the teaching profession. But that uh, all changed when the new right um, ideology came into power in the 1980s. Uh, And we're now seeing our teachers at the school level overworked, shockingly overworked, undervalued and definitely underpaid. Those those teachers, they they all come in with such passion to help the future of our world. And I feel like we need to be looking to other systems and other ways of teaching to ensure that our teachers are not treated like this. And um, I'd like to refer us to the Finnish way of teaching once again, which is, it's actually, um, it's come to Australia just in little raindrops. Um, Those are the professional development sessions that we were speaking about in conjunction with Tempera University in Finland, which is available to all teachers, but it has nothing to do with government funding. The government has nothing to do with it. Again, this is teachers taking their own time to go out of their way to better their own teaching techniques and to make it better for the students. So while it's a fantastic program and anyone who's interested, go to www.micklawrence.com. That's Mick Lawrence, L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E.com and learn about the professional development sessions. Uh, while it is an option, it's obviously an option that's uh, not coming from any centralised governance. It's coming from the individuals themselves, the teachers themselves. It really does need to be supported by the government because, again, that is extra work for this teacher who is being underpaid. Exactly, exactly. I'm going to continue with this article. The first step is to acknowledge the complexity involved in effective teaching. The next step is to recognize expert teachers through dedicated roles with extra responsibilities to lead the professional learning and development of the whole teacher workforce. The Victorian government has already started to invest in this kind of career path, but there is much further to go in getting it right. Increasing teacher pay to bring it into line with other professions is also important. The inquiry recommends pay increases for all teachers of 10 to 15% by 2023, but we believe the biggest priority is to increase teacher pay at the top of the salary scale by up to 80% 
to $180,000, creating new expert roles for those at the pinnacle of the profession with salaries to match, which goes back to the Finnish way of teaching um, wherein their teachers have master's degrees. Well, and not not only that, teaching the profession itself is highly valued and it's incentivized. So people actually want to become teachers because not only do they get the money, but also it's it's a high status job. Whereas repeatedly in government press releases, teachers are constantly being blamed and bashed. Higher top end salaries like the $180,000 mark, would not only recognise the value of expert teachers but also help attract the next generation of young higher achievers to teaching. Young high achievers are influenced by salaries when making their career choices and teacher salaries fall well below other professions at the top end, as shown in our 2019 report, Attracting High Achievers. High-performing teachers in their 20s are paid close to high performers in their 20s in other careers. But by the time teachers hit their 30s and 40s, their pay has stagnated, whereas the pay of their peers in other professions has often leapt. So the OECD research shows that Australia's top teacher salary is only 40% higher than the starting salary, well below the OECD average of 80%. And teaching is a much harder job than many government appreciates. We we argue for large increases to top-end teacher pay linked to two new expert teacher positions. So new instructional specialists limited to about 8% of teachers would be paid $140,000, about $40,000 more than the highest pay for regular classroom teachers in Victoria. New master teachers, which would be the top 1%, would be paid up to $180,000. So these new positions should be created now, but filled gradually over 10 years to ensure all instructional specialists and master teachers are of high quality. In late 2019, Victoria's Education Minister, James Molino, publicly supported the Grattan proposal to increase top teacher pay by $80,000, saying that teacher pay should be on par with that of doctors and lawyers. And that is something I completely agree with. And it hasn't yet happened, but, you know, let's hope it's in the new Victorian Enterprise Bargaining Agreement being negotiated this year. The um, Gallup Inquiry was an impressive investigation of the many challenges teachers face. Teaching is a complex and critical task. We must invest systematically to build and deploy expertise within the profession. Over to you, Premier Andrews and Minister Molino. Well, it's going to be very interesting to see what does happen in these negotiations. Mm. There were, I think it was 125 comments, a lot of comments on this article when it appeared in The Age in the last week. But there was a very interesting one from a gentleman called R.K. who did some maths. Dale, would you like to tell us about that one? R.K. says, let's do the maths. Eight weeks extra holidays, 15 hours unpaid overtime for 44 weeks, 15 times 44 is 660 hours unpaid overtime annually. 660 unpaid overtime hours minus 40 paid hours per week equals 16.5 weeks. 16.5 weeks unpaid overtime minus eight extra weeks holidays per year is 16.5 minus 8 equals 8.5 unpaid overtime weeks worked per year. 
So teachers should either get February and March and a bit of April as holidays or take away the need for them to do so much unpaid overtime. Oh, and pay them properly. But now we'll have a quick break and we'll be right back. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Well, Dale is now going to take us over to America and to a gentleman who was uh, interested in privatising public schools but is now very much against it. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. On Diane Ravitch's uh, conversation with Jennifer Berkshire and Charles Seiler this week in the Network for Public Education, uh, she spoke to Charles Seiler, who has ed- excellent credentials to work in the privatisation movement. But in this article, he explains why he switched sides. Confessions of a former privatiser, why I don't want to eradicate public schools anymore. I spent years working to privatise public schools. I realised that I was wrong and I'm now proud to call myself a public education advocate. Nearly all my life I believed public schools were obstacles to success, achievement and social mobility for individuals and our society as a whole. And it wasn't just schools. This was my belief about nearly all government activity. I saw government agencies as little more than hives of self-serving bureaucrats looking for ways to increase their budgets by robbing more and more money from taxpayers, all while standing in the way of innovation and success. My view of government, including government schools, was in many ways a reflection of my upbringing. I was raised by evangelical Christians with a father who descended from slave owners and who attended schools in Mississippi before the state had fully integrated them. 
the words Robert E. Lee surrendered, but I didn't, were emblazoned on a trinket that hung off the family's car keys. This tongue-in-cheek joke that wasn't entirely a joke captured the ethos of our familial and social circles. As we saw it, a strong government meant outsiders imposing limitations on us and got in the way of people living their lives. A strong federal government, after all, had freed our slaves. That same strong federal government told us how to run our elections and forced us to integrate our schools. I left home and joined the military before heading to college. By that time, my anti-government views had transitioned from general critiques steeped in the lost cause myth I'd grown up with to economic and social policies that I could back up with evidence and reasoned philosophy. I was drawn to libertarianism, so I headed to George Mason University to study economics. It was a fitting choice as the department has been designed to develop young talent who could recast the Republican Party's Southern strategy, including the school choice fight against desegregation into clinical academic language bolstered by dispassionate evidence. I was only 30 years old, but I'd already had a lifetime of conditioning. Some I was born into, much I'd sought out on my own. I was convinced that people were their most liberated and most able to define their own lives when they were given as much individual freedom as possible without the intervention of government or the whims of the majority rule. A common refrain I heard and was fond of repeating was that absolute democracy is four wolves and a sheep deciding what's for dinner. Unions were just as much part of the problem as far as I was concerned as they enabled people to form large groups and decide what others could or couldn't do. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? That's the Southern Republican American who's really anti-democracy. Absolutely. To me, public school represented everything that was wrong with our society. Our K-12 schools were a massive government bureaucracy staffed by union members that children were compelled to attend and adults were forced to pay for with their taxes. If I was going to help make the country a better place for everyone, I had to pitch in and help take down public schools. By now, you've probably noticed that I brought a certain arrogance to my mission. That's because I was convinced that I was working to make people better off. But I was also frustrated by the positive opinions that so many people seem to have about public education, as well as government programs, including Social Security and Medicare. People didn't understand what was truly best for them. And that arrogance defined my work and the privatisation movement more generally. Even as I pursued my mission with zeal, I was beginning to experience doubts about whether the policies I was pushing really were improving people's lives. For one thing, the evidence that I was so fond of pointing to when I argued with public school defenders was actually pretty hard to find. That's because pro-privatisation groups like the ones I worked for and alongside fight with incredible vigour to block any efforts to collect data on privatisation programs. When data was available, I could see for myself that the program I was selling rarely seemed to produce academic benefits for students, even as they increased inequity. I knew that data could always be cherry-picked to make a pro-privatisation arguments. It was what I did for a living. But it was increasingly hard for me to deny what I could see with my own eyes. Privatisation is bad for students, for communities and economies. 
Confronting the reality of the work I'd been doing in conservative libertarian policy circles wasn't easy. Fortunately, I had a network of friends who supported me through my crisis of conscience, but it was a chance encounter that really pressed me to deepen my re-examination of my beliefs and would lead me to become an advocate for public schools. One evening, I dropped by a public debate on privatisation in order to catch up with a former colleague who advocated for school vouchers. I ended up running into Dawn Panic Backer, my former supervisor when I worked in public affairs for the military, who'd since gone on to co-found Save Our Schools Arizona. More than a decade had passed since we'd worked together, and here we were on opposite sides of school voucher expansion in Arizona. That encounter marked the resumption of my friendship with Dawn. It also forced me to engage in a much more critical examination of school privatisation than I had ever done before. Here was someone who I liked and respected and who believed passionately that privatising schools was not empowering parents at all and had reams of data to back up her argument. Study after study showed, lack, showed a lack of academic improvement for students in school privatisation programs. School privatisation programs increased segregation, they increased discrimination, they were more susceptible to fraud and so on. I had no choice but to admit that I'd been wrong. I reached a turning point in my life. When Arizona legislators passed a universal school measure, something I would have cheered as a privatisation advocate, I joined the opposition. I signed up with Save Our Schools Arizona, becoming one of the countless volunteers who helped defeat the voucher measure at the polls in 2018 by a two-to-one margin. I also did what I could to support Save Our Schools policy efforts using the lobbying and communication skills I'd honed as a privatisation advocate on behalf of public education. Working with Save Our Schools Arizona was profoundly inspiring to me. It is an incredible organisation of volunteers and seeing so many people pouring so much of themselves into fighting for their communities has galvanised me to become more deeply involved. It's also been incredibly frustrating to encounter the political machine I used to be part of. The movement to privatise schools and indeed all public goods can feel overwhelming with its persistence, its reach and its political influence. Despite this, I have a lot of hope for the future. The politicians that the privatisers bankroll have gone too far. People are getting more engaged, not to mention more enraged as a result. In other words, I'm seeing cracks in the privatisation army that I used to be part of. And as grassroots resistance gets stronger, the movement is gasping for wins. They're also having to attack democracy itself in a more coordinated effort just to hold on to the gains that they've made. Sensing that the door is closing, they're grasping for as much as they can before it's too late. That's why there's so much frenetic activity at the state level right now. These are the desperate reaches of a movement in crisis. I'm convinced that the pendulum is set to swing back in support of public institutions and public schools. While the fight is exhausting and often dispiriting, this is actually an exciting time to be an advocate for public schools. Diverse communities are more engaged than ever and are helping shape conversations about the future of public education. People are paying more and more attention to local elections, including school board races.
There are many of you reading this who have been fighting for public schools way longer and way more effectively than I have. While I can't know the exhaustion and despair many of you must feel at this point, I hope that you see the light ahead. Hopefully together we can turn the tide on school privatisation. I'm proud to finally join you in the fight for our communities and our future. We'll have a quick break and then we'll be right back with a great state school. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mōbōhina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio. Your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit! Our education is not for profit! You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Every week on The Dogs Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the school. week. Great state schools. State, state schools. schools. School are of the week. Schools. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Yes, our great state school for this week is Reservoir East Primary School who begin their school day with an acknowledgement of the land and why it's important to care for it in the way that Aboriginal people have done for many centuries. The routine is one way the school embeds Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history and culture, one of the curriculum's three cross-curriculum priorities in its teaching. A review of Australia's curriculum released last week found numerous concerns with how that history and culture is taught including a lack of truth-telling about First Nations experiences since the arrival of Europeans and a failure to recognise that they experience colonisation as an invasion and dispossession of land, sea and sky. 
it's unlikely those reviewers were referring to Reservoir East Primary, where any teaching of a whitewashed history has long been long been excised in favour of an approach that confronts tough truths about stolen lands and stolen generations, according to a prep teacher, Alinta Williams. I think we need to give our students a lot more credit than they probably get in terms of their understanding and empathy towards these discussions, Miss Williams said. There are so many resources out there, so much fantastic literature and excellent websites that there really is no excuse not to. Any changes to the curriculum that follow the review will take effect next year, following 10 weeks of public consultation. The final version must also be signed off by all federal and state and territory education ministers. Federal Education Minister Alan last week said he was concerned that the draft version might not have got the balance right between honouring Australia's Indigenous history and its Western heritage. But Deborah Bateman, Dean of Education at Flinders University and an expert on curriculum development, said the proposed changes to Australia's curriculum reflected an increasingly sophisticated understanding of Aboriginal reconciliation and of Australia's place in the world. History is not a singular narrative, Professor Bateman said. In Australia, for a very long time, we have kind of depended on a, on a narrative of sameness, that to be an Australian means we reflect a whole range of stereotypes. Debated about the proposed changes, which also include replacing reference to the nation's Christian heritage, with references to its multi-faith cultural diversity, reflect a long-standing tension between the traditional and the dominant cultural view and the emergent changing world view, she said. Victoria has its own curriculum, which has the same cross-curriculum priorities as the national version. Reservoir East principal James Cummings said that all necessary, all necessary material is already there within both existing curriculums to take a more open approach to teaching First Nations culture and history. When we are talking about the Australian curriculum, there is a lot of smoke and mirrors with people jumping up and down and talking about what they'll lose. But for me, it's what you'll gain by teaching a broader perception of what history is about, which is what Mr Cummings said. Well, history has always been a contested area in the school curriculum, much like religion. Uh, and the important thing is that we keep this debate going and that we keep asking questions about our past in relation to our present day problems. And our Indigenous, well, I would have to say that we are the Indigenous people's problem, but uh, we need to actually keep this debate going in our schools so that our children can learn to think for themselves about our, ours and their history. But that's enough for today. Okay, so it's bye for now.
In Salt Lake City, just as I am standing by my bed, they framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I ain't dead, says Joe, but I ain't dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize, went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you find your You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.